Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. And as you're turning there, we're going to cover a lot of text today, just like we did last week, two full chapters of text. And so I'm going to try to help make sense of it. Last week, we really noticed that Luke was making a point of how the escalation was building. Uh, There was conflict, direct conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Uh, And he he even spoke in Luke chapter 21 about future conflict. And so he's preparing his disciples for what's going to happen later this week. Uh, in Passion Week, but he's also preparing them for his leaving them uh, and what's to come. And so even preparing them, saying, hey, I'm going to leave, but I will come back again, uh, my second coming, when I will fully inaugurate my kingdom. My kingdom's here now, but it's not yet. So when I come back, my second advent, uh, the kingdom will be in full force, uh, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. For some, it might be too late, but that's what's what will happen. And so we find ourselves even 2,000 years later living in that in-between after Jesus' death and resurrection and waiting for him to come back. Um, So much so that John ends the book of Revelation saying, hey, come Lord Jesus, just come back. So that's our cry as well. So I want to remind you through the help of the Bible Project, if you remember that uh, organization, uh, just a little part of their video out of Luke uh, of Passion Week as Jesus enters Jerusalem on Sunday and how this week transpires and where we're going in the text today. So the graphics might not keep up with the audio, but hopefully the audio is going to work okay here. So we're walking through the Gospel of Luke, and we've reached the end of Jesus' long road trip to Jerusalem. He's arrived. So he rides a donkey down the Mount of Olives towards the city, and all these crowds are forming, and people are singing, Praise the King who comes in the name of the Lord. They're laying down their cloaks in front of him. The wildest royal treatment. Okay, so Israel's ancient prophets promised that one day God himself would arrive and rescue his people and rule the world. Other times the prophets spoke about a coming king who would ride into Jerusalem to bring justice and so Jesus is activating all these hopes that he's that king, and everyone's ecstatic. Well, not everybody. But the religious leaders, they think Jesus is a threat to their power, and so they're not happy. But even more striking, Jesus himself is distraught. He's actually weeping as he rides. Yeah, why? Well, Jesus can see what is coming. He knows that he won't be accepted as Israel's king. And he knows that Israel will keep going down the destructive neglecting the poor, stirring up rebellion against their Roman oppressors, and he knows that it will lead to death. It breaks his heart. And it riles him up. The first thing he does in Jerusalem is march into the temple courts, and he drives out the money changers, disrupting the entire sacrificial system. Yeah, he's staging a prophetic protest, and he stands in the center of the courtyard, shouting out words from Israel's ancient prophets. This is supposed to be a place of worship, but you've made it a den of rebels. A den of rebels? Yeah, he's quoting from the prophet Jeremiah, who stood in this same spot, the center of Israel's religious and political power. And he offered the same critique of Israel's leaders, that they're rebellious and corrupt. And they get the message and start the plan to have them killed which is no surprise to Jesus. In fact, he planned that all of this would happen during Passover. This is the Holy Week when Jewish people celebrate their ancient story of how God liberated them from slavery and invited them into a covenant relationship. And so Jesus uses the symbols of Passover to reveal the meaning of his coming death. The broken bread was his broken body, and the wine 
was his blood that would establish a new covenant relationship between God and Israel. Jesus was going to die for his people and open up a new way forward. After the meal, Jesus takes his disciples to a garden to pray. And he struggles with the very human desire to save his life instead of sacrificing it. But he overcomes this temptation. And it's here where the religious leaders with the temple guards find him and arrest him. Now, Jerusalem was being ruled by the Roman Empire, and so the temple leaders couldn't execute Jesus without permission from their Roman governor, a man named Pontius Pilate. And so they make up this charge that Jesus is a rebel king stirring up revolution against the Roman emperor. Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, you say so. So Pilate can see that Jesus is an innocent man. And he does deserve death. But the leaders keep insisting that he is dangerous. So they negotiate a compromise. Pilate will release an actual rebel against Rome, a man named Barabbas, instead of Jesus. And so the innocent is handed over in the place of the guilty. Jesus is taken away with two other accused criminals and nailed to a Roman execution device. The people are mocking him. Hey, if you're the Messianic king, save yourself and us. But Jesus loved his enemies to the very end, offering hope to one of the criminals dying beside him. And he even prayed for his executors. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then the sky darkened as an innocent man died the death of a rebel. And then Jesus cried out with ancient words from Israel's psalms, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then Jesus died, innocent and alone. All right, so we're going to cover some of that text today, uh, kind of looking at uh, Jesus initiating this Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, what we know as communion. We'll celebrate that together uh, today. We have a, a, a few examples of what to do and what not to do from the disciples uh, from that very moment on. Uh, we see Peter's denial. Uh, we see Judas betray Jesus. Uh, we see the Jewish, uh, Jewish trial, then a Roman trial, and then ultimately Jesus' crucifixion and death. So, I want to remind you, at the end of chapter 19, Jesus entered Jerusalem, and it says in verse 47 of chapter 19, every day he was teaching at the temple. And so we've seen that as the escalation and the conflicts building, uh, the religious leaders are very, very upset. They're trying to figure out a way to kill Jesus. But why don't they snatch Jesus Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday? Anybody remember? They had to wait. Well, the crowds still loved Jesus, right? And the religious leaders were kind of cowards, right? They, they, they didn't want to do something in front of the crowds that were uh, being drawn to Jesus' teaching in the temple, right? And so the religious leaders uh, are trying to figure out a way uh, to trap Jesus and ultimately kill him. And uh, in the text today, we're going to see they do find a way through Judas uh, betraying Jesus kind of sets up uh, everything in motion. And so we ended last week, um, kind of bookend or sandwiched here. We started the week every day teaching in Jerusalem, and the text tells us that uh, at the end of chapter 21, every day Jesus was teaching at the temple. And so an evening he went to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives, and the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Again, the crowds love it, the religious leaders hate it. Uh, And so chapter 22, verse 1 
And we're going to go through a lot of text today that I don't have up here. And so if you have a device or a Bible or if you need uh, one of the Bibles out there, no shame in grabbing one of those to kind of uh, keep along with us today. But chapter 22, verse 1. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, in case you were thinking it was another Judas. Verse 4, And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers uh, of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented, watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. And so as Judas is preparing to turn Jesus in or betray Jesus, turning him into the authorities... Uh, Jesus is going to send a couple disciples to prepare the Last Supper meal. And so traditionally, uh, Jews would have to celebrate the Passover meal in Jerusalem. And so they're at the Mount of Olives, but they go back somewhere near the temple probably. They go back in, somewhat secretively, to an upper room of someone's home uh, to celebrate this meal. And so we're going to kind of look at what's called Monday Thursday. Monday is a meal, uh, a word, a Latin word that kind of refers to obedience or the commandment, uh, referring to John, uh, John's gospel, when he, he has Jesus give a new commandment to the disciples to love one another. And then he displays that by washing the disciples' feet. And so it's uh, kind of an interesting word, uh, maybe a little more foreign to us in evangelical circles, but... Uh, a good word nonetheless. So chapter 22, verse 7. Uh, what Luke is going to make very clear to us in the text today, these two chapters, uh, as we saw the conflict building, uh, the crowds love Jesus, but the authorities want to, to trap him, get, get in the way, to have him do something, or to be able to uh, snatch him somehow, somewhere, uh, to turn him in and get rid of him. They want nothing but the death uh, of Jesus. Ultimately, they're going to get their way. Uh, but Luke's going to show us that he's going to show us this depth of Jesus' love. But in the midst of the depth of Jesus' love, how much he, this whole week is a demonstration of Jesus' love for us. Uh, he's going to the cross. Luke is taking us to the cross uh, this Passion Week. But we're going to see the magnitude of his sacrifice. This was not easy for Jesus. This was God's will, but it doesn't mean it was easy. It doesn't mean it was cakewalk. It doesn't mean he liked it. Uh, this was agonizing. And Luke's going to point out to us through the text over and over again how, how difficult it was, this was for Jesus. Um, the extent of his sacrifice, the magnitude of it all. So chapter 2, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, which, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Uh, J- uh, Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want to, us to prepare for it? They asked. Jesus replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. That's a familiar phrase. When did we hear that last? Yeah, when Jesus instructs the disciples to go get the colt, go take someone's colt of a donkey. And when he asks, why are you taking my donkey? Say, the Lord needs it. 
And they found it exactly as Jesus had told them. So again, Jesus is in control every moment of all this narrative. Let's not forget that he's in control of all of it. So in the same way, he sends them ahead to go make preparations, and they find it exactly as he had told them. I think that's, that's pretty cool. So the end of verse 13, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it it might be who would do this. Let's stop there for for a moment. So Jesus sends Peter uh, and John ahead to make preparations for their Passover, their Last Supper, to celebrate the Passover meal together. Again, the Passover is a celebration way back to the days of Exodus, right? They're captive in Egypt. God sends plagues against, uh, essentially, Pharaoh, all of Egypt, uh, Jews and Egyptians alike. uh, And nine plagues aren't enough. And so the tenth plague is um, where they have to shed the blood of a spotless lamb and put put the blood on the doorpost and the angel of death would pass over, right? And spare that family, those kids. Other families are not spared. And so for years, it's been a celebration of God's faithfulness, his deliverance, his goodness, getting the people out of slavery, of bondage uh, to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And Jesus is going to say, hey, let's, let's prepare the Passover meal. But now he's going to institute the Lord's Supper and he's going to take the Passover celebration that they would do annually. And they'd have to go all the way to Jerusalem for no matter where they lived as Jews. And he's going to apply it to what's coming ahead for him in the next day. Uh, He's going to apply that same idea, him being that spotless lamb whose blood is going to be shed so that his blood could be, uh, could cover us uh, so that in very symbolic ways, uh, we would be passed over in terms of God's wrath and judgment. You with me so far? A little Old Testament background. You guys knew this because... We talk about this often. But it's interesting to me when he says, hey, I'm not, this is going to be the last time I take this meal with you, but I will take it once again. And so Jesus points kind of to the past, the Passover lamb. He's going to apply that to himself. He's like, now this bread is symbolic of my body. I'm going to be broken for you. This cup is symbolic of my blood that's going to be spilled or shed So a new covenant, instituting a new era uh, in the kingdom of God. But he's also looking ahead, saying, hey, I will come back. I will celebrate this meal with you again. But not until the kingdom of God is fully inaugurated, established. And so he's referring to his second coming. Not until then will I partake of this meal with you again. I think that's pretty interesting. 
That makes sense of what Paul says uh, in one of his letters. He says, every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Right? So communion is not just a remembrance, but it's a proclamation and it's a looking forward. Uh, not just thanking God for what he's done, but looking forward to his return in a lot of ways. So Jesus is kind of looking past future uh, and then in the present uh, state with his closest buddies in this upper room and celebrating it together and saying, hey, you guys full, don't really fully know what's going to happen. You won't fully know what's going to happen until after I rise again, and then it'll make more sense. The gospel writers tell us that very fact. Uh, but he tells them, hey, this is my body. This is my blood poured out for you. And then he says, um, which I love this, verse 20, he said, this is, the, this is my, uh, uh, this cup is symbolic of my, the covenant, kind of a new covenant, my blood poured out for you. Verse 21, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. And we talk about uh, embracing inevitable tensions quite often around here, and that tension of human responsibility and God's sovereignty, right? So in verse uh, 22, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. This is God's will. This is my plan. This is my destiny. Nothing's getting in the way of that. But woe to that man who betrays me. So that man, Judas, will he be held accountable, responsible for his actions? He absolutely will, right? So God's sovereignty and human responsibility kind of intersecting and intertwining. So obviously the disciples are like, well, who's, who is he talking about? Is he talking about me? Is he talking about you? Is he, uh, what's going on here? And so they began to dialogue. Verse 24. A dispute, among, uh, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. And so not only are they trying to discuss who is he talking about who's going to betray him, but when Jesus' kingdom is fully here, when the Messiah, who, where, am I going to be, where am I going to sit? Am I going to be in the seat of honor? Uh, or who, who's, who's greater among us? All of us are kind of with him now, but what's, what's going to happen? And so they begin to kind of compare themselves among themselves, find their significance in the eyes of others, which seems to be total foolishness on the heels of Jesus just saying, hey, I'm going to the cross. When you celebrate the Passover meal from this day on, it's a celebration of what I'm about to do. The breaking of my body, the shedding of my blood. And so it just reminds you how um, the disciples are just knuckleheads, right? Just a bunch, like me and you, just a bunch of knuckleheads. Like they, they get it one moment and they totally flop the next, ups and downs. And so all of a sudden they're arguing about how great they are, how great their team is, whatever you want to say. But so verse 25, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the least significant. And the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I among you as the one who serves. You are, uh, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I uh, confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, 
so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Hey, guys, hold off on the whole hierarchy and sitting at God's right hand kind of thing. So verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brother. So this is interesting. So he's talking, Jesus is saying, continuing right on the heels of this. Peter, Simon is asked to sift you, to get involved. We just saw that, uh, that Satan entered Judas. So Satan's actively involved this week and in this whole process and in all these events. And now Satan wants to, uh, has God's permission to get inside Peter's head in his heart and mind. And the, the new NIV does a good job and translates, has asked to sift all of you because it's plural. When he says, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. All of you guys. And then Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, Simon. And he doesn't, he doesn't pray that you would avoid the temptation. He doesn't pray that you'd make the right decision. What does Jesus pray for Simon Peter? That your faith won't fail you. Whatever Satan's about to do, I'm praying that you, that your faith will remain strong and firm. Trust me, no matter what's going to happen. And when you've turned back, meaning you're going to fall, but you're going to get back up again. When you get back up, strengthen your brothers. Verse 33. We may not even get through this chapter. We will. Verse 33, which chapter are we in? 21 still. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Ambitious of you, Peter, right? Ultimately, will he go to prison and death? Yeah, he will. Just not yet. So verse 34, Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. Verse 35, then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without a purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, as he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Ultimately, I must fulfill the prophecy that I will die. I will be considered a criminal die a criminal's death. Yes, that is written about me as reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, Jesus said. Okay, what exactly is going on? Uh, Jesus is preparing them. He has sent them out as apostles before. He has sent out 72 disciples before in Luke's account, right? Did he ever tell them to bring anything? He told them to bring nothing. Trust God to provide for you and go to this home and this home and they will take care of you. Now he's saying, hey, be prepared. It's going to be difficult. I'm sending you out in a different way now. And so be ready. Does Jesus literally mean bring a sword? This is a, this is a terrible predicament for translators or people to understand what's going on. So he says, hey, if you don't have a sword... Sell some things and buy a sword. And then the disciples are like, hey, look, here's two swords. That's, that's enough, Jesus says. Is he literally saying, hey, take a sword and you're going to fend for yourself? Could be literal. 
It could be really helpful if he didn't say sword here, I think. Because I think it's metaphorical. I think he's just saying, hey, be prepared. It's not going to be easy. Even your life will be at risk. Why do I think so? Because just in the next paragraph, Peter pulls out a sword and cuts someone's ear off, right? And what does Jesus do? What are you doing? And heals the man's ear, right? So the disciples might be taking this literally. I think Jesus means it metaphorically. Be prepared. It's going to be hard. Uh, your, life, your very lives are on the line uh, from now on. <coughs> you don't have to agree with me. So it has nothing to do with the Second Amendment. Okay. Aren't you glad the graphics 2,000 years ago were like, eh, I mean, things have improved. Yeah, the kids are like, yeah. Verse 39. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. On reaching this place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. So here we have Jesus, in all honesty, in, in conversation with the Father. So we have two, two members of the Trinity. He's communing, talking to the Father. Hey, I know this is going to be hard. If there's any other way, can it be? Is Jesus' will and the Father's will on two separate pages? Hmm, interesting question. Is that possible? The author of Hebrews, turn to the right. The author of Hebrews gives us kind of a glimpse into this. Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, The author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse, verse 2, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus went to the cross for the joy sent before him. I think he's just being literal. This is going to be hard. Father, I know there's no other way. If there was another way, let's pursue the other way. But I know there's not another way. So that's why he says, yet not my will, but your will be done. So my will, Father, is on the same page as yours. This has to be. And it's going to be awful physically. Uh, Even more than physically, it's going to be far worse spiritually and emotionally for the sins of all of us to be on his shoulders. The wrath of God poured out on him. And so Mel Gibson does a great job in The Passion of the Christ showing how physically uh, tormented Jesus was, but I think it pales in, conspira- pales in comparison to the spiritual agony that Jesus had to suffer uh, and go through. All right. Verse 43, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and the sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I don't think literal drops of blood. I think just thick drops of sweat. He was in agony. And so he prayed all the more. He's in anguish, Luke tells us. This is difficult. The magnitude of his suffering, of his sacrifice, is incredible. Verse 45. 
When he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep. Well, obvious. Ex- uh, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading him, leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss, a sign of affection, a sign of friendship, a sign of trust? And that very act, the ultimate sign of uh, the ultimate extent of his betrayal. Will you betray me with a kiss? Verse 49, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? You just told us to have swords, right? One of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. We know from other gospel writers, this is Peter. Peter's leading the charge off in. Verse 51, but Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. The very man who would lead him to the cross and execute Jesus, what does Jesus do? Takes his ear, whether it's on the ground or I don't know, right? We don't know. Takes his ear and heals him. It's an act of love even for a guy who's going to lead him to the cross physically in the next very hours. Verse 52, then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers in the temple guard, uh, and the elders who had come to him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this hour when darkness reigns. Verse 54, when Jesus, uh, then seizing him, seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had... Uh, Um, had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together. Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, referring to this man was with Jesus. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. But it's not even a military general. It's a servant girl. It's the first one who asked Peter, hey, I thought you were with this Jesus. And he says, nope, I don't know him. Verse 58, a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he, was a, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, something only Luke tells us. That Jesus, the rooster crows, Jesus turns and makes eye contact with Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today. You will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And I kind of wonder how that, what that look was like. Was that a look of disappointment? I'm upset with you, right? Or was it more of a look of, hey... A look of affirmation, saying, I told you this would happen, Peter. And a look of love. I, I love you even in the midst of this. I told you it was going to happen, but I'm going to love you through this. I already told you you're going to fall, but when you get up, that your faith would be strengthened and you strengthen the faith of others. 
which is pretty beautiful because who are the heroes of Luke's next volume, the book of Acts? Peter and Paul. Two guys who were royal screw-ups, right? Who couldn't... Right. Peter, who we, who we get snapshots throughout Luke's first volume, and then we know of Paul as uh, a religious leader executing Christians. And yet, God loves them enough and wants to use them going forward. Pretty awesome. How just a few chapters and uh, whatever weeks later... Peter is preaching at Pentecost, and thousands are embracing Christ from every nation. Pretty awesome. Just the glimpse we get into the disciples. The up and down, making mistakes, but getting up. God's forgiveness and love in the midst of all of it, saying, you can't blow it enough for me to stop loving you and stop using you. So keep trusting in me. You're not going to be perfect. You're going to fall You're going to be in process. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to have heartaches and failures. But keep getting up and keep fixing your eyes on me because the joy set before me, I went to the cross for you. Because the joy, even in the midst of agony, the joy that I went to the cross for so that I could restore a right relationship between you and the Father. So let me just... Let me just read the crucifixion account. We're going to pass communion and partake as we close uh, this morning. Uh, but let me just read this. And so maybe you want to read along. Maybe you want to close your eyes. Uh, but I want to read just the trial account and then the, uh, the crucifixion. And uh, not easy words to read. Um, but I don't think we can read these words enough. I don't think we can celebrate communion enough. Uh, a reminder of the extent of God's sacrifice for us in Christ. So let me just pound through this. Verse 63, chapter 22. The men who were were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together. And Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer me. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payments of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. Did he oppose payment to Caesar? No, he did not. Verse 3. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests of the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man, but they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching They started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. And when they learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him in person, or he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. 
He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence, and I have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but he kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have them punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered uh, surrendered Jesus to their will. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they said to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if the people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also let out uh, with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And he divided up his clothes by cast- they divided up uh, his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers came up and mocked him and offered him, they offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourselves. There was written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there insulted, uh, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then Jesus said, remember me when you come, when you come into your kingdom. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was about noon. The darkness came over, uh, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this 
was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breast and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. There was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who was who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb of a rock, one in which one had not yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come to, uh, with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. They went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Father, thanks for the extent of your love, the enormity of your sacrifice. This was not an easy time, not just the physical treatment, but the weight of the sins for all eternity from every man and woman on your shoulders. Something you could only do for us, something that had to be done, something there was no other way. So now as we kind of ponder the events of Thursday and Friday, as we prepare to take communion, would you just continue to encourage our hearts and minds as we reflect on the enormity of your love and sacrifice for each one of us. In your name we pray. Amen.